Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? Good, meh, all right, it's snowing out. My name's Mike. I'm the discipleship director here. And we are in the season of Advent. Any, uh, any adults in here who are like still into Advent calendars? I mean, no, I'm not into Advent calendars. What are you talking about? No, I saw a couple hands, thank God. Like, I, like, why do kids just get all the chocolate at Christmas time? Like, I will, I mean, this is actually the first year I don't have an Advent, Advent calendar, and it's, I might actually go out and buy one, because every morning my daughter Quinn gets to, yeah, yeah, you get to open a chocolate. It's like, where's my chocolate? Um, but yes, we are in the season of, of Advent, a season of, of reflection and, on and celebration of the birth of Jesus. And I mean, this morning, the, the Bartels kind of explanation of, of Advent was so, so perfect because Advent is also a time we are to look forward in hopeful expectation of the coming of God's kingdom when Jesus comes again. This is our hope that, Jesus, uh, that Pastor Jerry spoke on last week. And within church tradition, we do this by looking at four themes found in the gospel story. Those are hope, peace, love, and joy. And this morning, we'll look at the gospel theme of peace. So reflecting on, on what the world has been like uh, the last few years and how we've lived through it, it's clear that the world and our lives have been anything but at peace. A global pandemic that literally shut the entire world down on numerous occasions. Divided opinions, social issues, injustices, protests, riots, war in Ukraine, still. And these are just the major headlines from the last couple of years. Not only these, but each one of us can contribute stories of personal unrest and conflict, whether they stem from these major issues or something entirely different. Welcome to church. I promise things will get more hopeful and peaceful as we continue because we have Jesus. I promise these things will get better because Jesus promises these things. When reflecting on all of this, though, it's clear that peace is something that this world is sorely lacking. We live in tension, that Jesus offers peace and brings peace, and yet we live in a time that is very much not at peace. One reason why I think these past couple of years uh, have been so hard, it's been so hard for me anyway, uh, is because here in Canada, we've actually become quite used to uh, peace, or at least the absence of conflict when it comes to destruction or disease. However, if we look at the historical record, peace has always been a commodity in short supply. And the farther back we go, the more common it was to live in times of unrest rather than peace. And we see this reality really clear in the Old Testament. Unrest is even the context of one of the most popular Advent verses in the Bible and one of our key texts this morning, uh, Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7. It's been read this morning already, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. This passage casts 
such an image of peace. And in my life, it's actually conditioned me a little bit to, to get ready for the Christmas season and get family gatherings and food. However, when we look to the verses around it and dive into what was happening at the time of its writing, this passage was birthed from a reality of unrest and conflict. Isaiah was a man born into an Israel that was no longer following after God and living by his wisdom. The political leaders were no longer caring for the poor and the oppressed. Rather, they were the oppressors themselves. And the religious leaders were either half-heartedly leading Israel in worship, simply going through the motions and living unchanged or corrupt lives, or were leading them in worship to other gods entirely. As a nation, Israel was not at peace. Not only this, but because they decided to turn away from God and his way of life and pursued the way of the nations around them, they placed themselves in the crosshairs of the big bad empires of the day, Assyria and later Babylon. And this was a consequence that God had even warned Israel of um, when they entered into relationship with him. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses warns Israel that if they choose to live life with God no longer at their center, their natural state would be one of conflict rather than peace. And so at the time of Isaiah, the Assyrian Empire was knocking at their door, and Israel's downfall into exile was beginning. This is what was going on when Isaiah was commissioned by God to tell the, nations, the nation of Israel that because they chose to rebel against God in his good ways, they would no longer live in peace. Rather, harm and violence would come to them at the hands of Assyria and Babylon because they had left God's presence. However, despite this reality of judgment and conflict, God promised that his good plans for them and the world would not actually be thwarted by this, and that his chosen one, the messianic king, would come and bring freedom and peace again. And so God encourages Israel through Isaiah by saying, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 9 again, but in its broader context, Isaiah says, God says through Isaiah, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, so Israel. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. From this promise comes a messianic expectation that one day 
God would send someone who would lead the people in the way they ought to go. A true way of living and being in relationship with God and others. A way of peace. Now, peace is a really important word because it helps us understand who this Prince of Peace is and what it is he's actually bringing. Because today's definition, if we really think about it, boils down to simply the absence of hostility and conflict. However, if we think about it, anyone who has friends, a spouse, a coworker, is in relationship of any kind, um, there might not be any overt conflict, but there certainly isn't peace. To be honest, I'm a, pretty, I'm a pretty temperamental person. I let the smallest things kind of derail me. Like, have you ever actually woken up and chosen to be grumpy that day? Because I, I have. I, I actually do that. And, I mean, thankfully, thankfully, it doesn't cause overt conflict in the house, but there certainly isn't any peace. Just ask my, my wife. To the biblical authors, though, Peace, or in Hebrew, shalom, includes this absence of hostility and conflict, but it's also much more holistic. The most basic meaning of shalom is completeness or wholeness. It's not just the absence of something bad, but it's the presence of something good. And this word also recognizes the, the very complex nature of life, and only when everything is in its right place is a person truly at peace. And so it also means well-being, good health, being prosperous, having security, and having right relationship, both at the micro level personally between people and at the macro level between communities and between nations. And most importantly, shalom Peace was associated with and only truly brought about when in God's presence. The author and creator of everything good and right, the one who brought order and life and beauty to chaos, the one who we are made in the image of and are meant to reflect his character to creation and all those who fill it. It is only him who can bring about complete wholeness and well-being that the word shalom is describing. And so moving back to Isaiah, when Israel decided to no longer pursue life in God's presence, not only did God leave, he kind of gave them, it's like, if someone doesn't want to be in relationship with you, you're not going to force them to stay because that's no relationship at all. And so God allows them to leave his presence. So his presence left, but so did his peace. When you go off script, you just lose it completely. <laughs> and this promise, going back to what Isaiah is talking about, this promise of the birth of a Messiah called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the hope and the expectation was that he would come and make Israel and the world whole again, complete. That when God returns, so will his peace. Ultimately, by the end of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, this hoped-for Prince of Peace was yet to actually arrive. Our Old Testament actually ends in, in huge tension because it's like, where is this person that this, the, the majority of the Bible has been talking about? However, the New Testament authors and those present for the birth of Jesus make it clear that 
that Jesus was and is this Prince of Peace. We see this clearly in the three announcements surrounding the birth of Jesus in Luke chapters 1 and 2, all three of which use words or phrases that actually link back to Isaiah's prophecy of this coming Prince of Peace. So first, an angel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33, and announces, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Later on, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesies over his son, announcing John's coming prophetic role and the coming of the Messiah by saying, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the paths of peace. Lastly, at the time of Jesus' birth, an angel meets and announces the news to a group of shepherds in a field, stating, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The highlighted portions of these passages are all links pointing back to God's promise through Isaiah. Jesus is the child born to us, the great light shining on those living in darkness, the one who brings peace and will guide all into the way of peace, the Messiah whose kingdom will never end. Now, as incredible, as like being there would have been absolutely amazing, we, we can't just stay at Jesus' birth. The reality is the world is perfectly fine staying here, setting up nativity scenes with cute tiny baby Jesus, ushering in a season of overeating and overshopping. However, as followers of Jesus, when we reflect on his birth, we are beckoned to remember and reflect on his life, death, and resurrection. Because it's more the life he surrendered on the cross that brought God's peace. So to understand how Jesus is the Prince of Peace, we need to turn to our next key text this morning. Colossians 1, 19-23. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen as well. So Colossians 1, 19-23. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, 
have become a servant. Paul is saying that through Jesus and his death on the cross, God made peace with all of creation and reconciled them to himself. This passage begs us to ask the question, though, what is this peace and reconciliation that Jesus brought through the blood of his cross? And through this passage and what we see in the rest of the New Testament, Jesus brought peace in three ways. Peace with God, peace with others, and peace with ourselves. First, how Jesus brought peace between us and God. And to understand this, we actually first need to look at the conflict. Going back to Genesis chapters 1 to 3, we see a good God bringing order to chaos and life from death when he creates the world and everything in it. From that point, he moves to create humans, stating in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, that he made humanity in his image and were meant to go out into his creation, cultivating its good potential and reflecting God's character while they do it. Genesis chapter 2 continues by showing the right relationship humanity had with God in the beginning, working side by side in an unhindered and loving relationship. However, this all changes by chapter 3. And for the sake of time, in a very small nutshell, the man and woman were tempted to believe that life outside of God's way was right and good. That if they chose to go their own way, they could decide how best to order life without God's wisdom. And when they agreed to disobey God and pursue a way of life on their own, outside of God's presence, something fundamental to human existence broke. And that this broken nature is something completely other to what we were meant to be as humans made in God's image. Moving forward in the Genesis story and the rest of the Bible, we see humans making decisions without God's love and wisdom to guide them, leading them out of order and life in, back into chaos and death. And so because we were made in God's image and were meant to reflect him and his character, every wrong we do to his creation, whether that be to ourselves, to others, or to the world, is actually wronging God. This is why David, lamenting and confessing, King David, lamenting and confessing his adultery in Psalm 51, can say in verse 4 that against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Humanity, unprovoked, went to war with God, creating conflict. However, through the rest of Genesis and the Old Testament, we actually see the story of God lovingly pursue his creation, desiring to make a way to come close to his people once again. Since becoming a parent, I, I've actually, I reflect more on all the stupid stuff I did to my parents when I was a kid. So like, uh, I, my parents are here, they could probably give you the exact details, maybe. Um, but when I was a young kid packing a bag full of toys and threatening to walk out the door and run away, um, and the thing is, I know if I had actually done that, I know my parents would have come after me because of their love for, the, for me. I hope so anyway, right? <laughs> I would. I would for my kids, and I know they would for me. And so like a loving parent, God pursued us. And this story develops as God chooses a group of people, the Israelites, out of all the people of the world— to enter into relationship with so that God can pursue his plan of making right again his relationship with all people. 
Yet from the beginning, it's made clear that the Israelites are just like every other broken human. And so we see, God's, we, as we see God's story of loving pursuit develop, we also see a growing tension. God is good and just. So evil and its consequences must be dealt with. How then is he going to be in relationship with broken, evil people, the Israelites included? Yet because God is also loving and merciful, he provides a way forward with sacrifice. God first outlines sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. And the most important one is the sacrifice done on the Day of Atonement. It was a solemn day where all of Israel would gather together and the high priest would confess Israel's sins and sacrifice an animal whose life represented theirs and whose death paid the price of their wrongdoing. Now, we are so far removed from the days of animal sacrifice that, that these passages of the Bible are, are confusing at best and at worst are just absolutely crazy. But sacrifice offered a visceral symbol of the devastating consequences of Israel's sin and selfishness. Not only that, but the animal's death symbolically paid the very real relational debt caused by the sin in their lives. Because of Israel's wrongdoing, and because God is just, he is well within his right to have them pay the price. However, because God is merciful and loving, he doesn't want to see them have to die, and so he provides the substitute. One reason why sacrifice in the Old Testament is so confusing, one reason why it was so confusing for me is that we likely view it through the lens of this is our way of somehow appeasing an angry God in the sky, which historically is typically how animal sacrifice was thought of and how it was conducted. But concerning biblical sacrifice, in Leviticus 17.11, God says that the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. Atonement simply means to cover. So we see here God providing a way for Israel to pay for the consequences of their evil through a substitute provided by God, showing both God's justice and his grace. However, the problem with these sacrifices was that they may have covered for Israel's sins for a time, but they needed to be repeated year after year, showing that they had no power in changing their hearts so they would just stop sinning. Enter Jesus and the cross. Jesus is identified at his birth as the Prince of Peace, the one who will restore peace between God and his creation, as we read back in Colossians, through the blood of the cross. And Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, and the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, likens Jesus and his death on the cross as a sacrifice like the one done on the Day of Atonement. But instead of God offering up an animal as a substitute, he offers himself, the one who was wronged. In his pursuit of peace, he offered up his life instead of ours, paying the debt caused by our own wrongdoing and sin, satisfying the requirement of justice, and showing his abounding love and mercy. So, how can we live this reality that Jesus has brought peace with us in God? 
And there are two things we need to do. First, we actually need to recognize that there's nothing we can pursue that actually further establishes more peace with God because God was the one who pursued us on his way to the cross. And so it all comes down to remembering this reality by continually reminding ourselves and being reminded by others of what God has done through Jesus to restore peace. And second, because of this, what we need to do is preach the gospel to ourselves always. That humanity broke relationship with God and by pursuing our own way of life, introduced death and evil to the world. And despite this, God loves us so much that he, the one who was wronged, pursued us. And in so doing, instead of demanding that we pay the price of justice, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, sacrificed himself in our place, restoring peace between humanity and himself. This is the gospel of peace and the story of the whole Bible. And this is what we need to constantly remind ourselves of. I have a hard time, personally, I have a very hard time accepting love from people. I've, as I, I'm a, the discipleship director here. We, we, I run, help run an internship program, and we go through spiritual formation classes. And as I'm teaching them, it's probably teaching me more. Um, but I'm, I'm recognizing that I have a difficult, difficult time accepting love from people, that I need to provide something to that relationship in order to essentially prove my value. And so I have an even harder time believing that God loves me so much that he died so that I can come back into his presence and there's nothing that he actually requires of me. He did that out of his own love for me. And I know some of you are, are probably similar to me. But this is why immersing ourselves, immersing ourselves into the story of the Bible, preaching the gospel to ourselves is so important because we will begin to live life from this reality as it sinks deeper into our hearts and our minds. Through his own death, we can now live at peace with God once again. And it's this peace we are meant to live in so that we can live it out, moving us to the second way Jesus brings peace, peace with others. When it comes to relating with people, the way of the world is that differences lead to conflict. If you don't look like us, think like us, act like us, then you must be against us in some way. Fallen human nature leads us to form tribes and then other everyone else, treating them with suspicion and at times hostility. We see this almost anywhere we look and how polarized we are on almost anything, whether that be important things like political or social justice issues or whatever silly thing is currently trending on social media. Rather than discussion and being willing to be wrong or change our opinions, we attempt to completely annihilate the opposition in a my way or the highway mentality. And if that doesn't work, then we simply cut them from our lives, choosing to stick with those who are the same as us. This is actually the way of the world. However, we see a different way brought about by Jesus. And we first see this way in his life, through the very people he calls to be his followers. Luke chapter 6, 12 to 16 outlines who Jesus chose from among his disciples to be his closest followers, the ones he would entrust to lead his church after he leaves. And so Luke recounts, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. 
and spent the, the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, not only is this a group of guys from different backgrounds, that alone can lead to conflict, as anyone with a group of friends knows, but we see two names in particular that really show that following Jesus and his way brings peace with others. And these are Simon the Zealot and Matthew, also called Levi, who we see a chapter back was a tax collector for the Roman Empire. These two people, prior to meeting Jesus, could not have been more different. Being called the Zealot likely gives us a glimpse into Simon's past life. The Zealots were a group of Jews who planned and actually took violent action against the occupying Roman forces in Israel. He was a freedom fighter or a terrorist, depending which side you were on. And Matthew, through exploitatively collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, was a person who was enabling the continued occupation of Israel. These two were the prime definition of enemies. And yet, as they went on living life with Jesus, they clearly were led to live in peace with one another. As they eventually led his church, unified with the other apostles as we see in Acts chapter 1. This peace we see Jesus bringing to others in his life only grows and expands by the power of his death and resurrection. As the early church spreads to not only other Jews in Israel, but to Gentiles or everyone else who wasn't Jewish all around the Mediterranean. As the good news of what God had done through Jesus to draw all people back into his presence was being shared, all kinds of people from different cultures and ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds began following Jesus and experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, like the Jewish Christians. This actually astounded many of the followers in Israel because what was believed to be only for them was clearly being made available to all. A devout Jew prior to following Jesus would not have had any dealings with a Gentile for fear of becoming unclean. This was one of the shocking things about Jesus when he went and spent time with and ate with people deemed unclean, people who were to be kept at a distance. But Jesus came close. And with the spread of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was drawing unlike people together. Much of Paul's letters are devoted to explaining this new reality, that in Jesus and the peace he brings between us and God, he is enabling us to be at peace with those we would normally not want anything to do with. Because again, our fallen human nature tempts us to view anyone not like us with either suspicion or hostility. In fact, the entire letter to the Ephesians is about the peace we now have with others that is offered through the good news of Jesus. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, reminding them that through Jesus, God is bringing unity. And that the story which started with the family of Abraham was now opening up to include everyone else. And so Paul explains this in Ephesians 2, 13 to 18, when he says, But now... But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, Gentiles, 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And so, because because of what Christ has done. This new multi-ethnic family is to pursue peace with one another because the one thing that unifies us, excuse me, is so big, Jesus, that it ought to overshadow everything that is different about, about us. And this isn't meant to lead to whitewashing everyone into looking and being the same. Rather, this ought to lead us to no longer demand that the other think like me, act like me, look like me, in order for me to love them and be at peace with them. I can now love you despite our differences because Jesus loved me despite our infinite differences. In Christ, we can be diverse yet unified and live at peace in God's presence together. Jesus, then, as the Prince of Peace, brought us peace with God, and enables us to be at peace with others. And when we live in and out of these realities, Jesus brings us peace with ourselves. I'm going to talk a little bit more about, you know, how do we live in the reality of bringing peace and being at peace with others. But peace with others and peace with ourselves are so closely correlated that they need to be talked about at the same time. So peace with others. Or sorry, peace with ourselves. And I'm actually not going to say too much about this. Uh, Because to be honest, when we read in the New Testament the peace Jesus brings and wants us to experience, we can read it in light of the individualistic culture we live in. Like, growing up, I read these verses, and it's like, oh, Jesus just wants to bring me peace. It doesn't really matter about anything else. And so I was incredibly me-centered, and that's not what's going on here when we read Scripture. Believing, um, yeah. So a couple of years ago, God actually really really highlighted that mentality of myself, of pursuing my own peace above others. I, I absolutely love family gatherings. I love them. Christmas, Thanksgiving, those are like the two, those are the two big, big ones for me because they're times that actually, like, I get to be with family. We get to, like, eat, drink, and be merry, as the saying goes. Um, but I would look forward to these, these events because of how good they made me feel. One year, though, I, excited for holiday get-togethers, I, I left each one of them feeling quite empty and frustrated, uh, which was weird because these gatherings, like, I mean, you could probably talk to my, my parents about it, like, our, and I'm sure most of you are the same, family gatherings kind of stick to a very traditional, like, this is what to expect at family gatherings. And so these family gatherings hadn't changed in any, any way. And worse, the following year, it was exactly the same. It was exactly the same. These things were no longer bringing me peace. And so when the next gathering was coming up, I I actually prayed. I prayed and I asked God, please let these things bring me joy again. I don't enjoy going to them anymore. And in that moment, God showed me how I was actually using my family to gain my own sense of well-being. I had mixed up 
the priorities of peace that God wanted me to have. I was using others to achieve my own peace and had no thought in how I should rather be contributing to theirs. And so God corrected this error of mine and directed me to pursue the peace of others above my own. And in no way am I perfect at this at family gatherings, but my, my attitude and my intentions are a little different now when I go into them. And thankfully, these gatherings are starting to be fulfilling for me again. <clears throat> and, and this whole experience actually makes sense because we have to remember the biblical understanding of shalom. Peace is far more than just the, that fuzzy feeling inside or just no bad things happening to me. It's a life lived with all its pieces in place, not just the ones inside. Jesus is putting our own individual brokenness back together by restoring right relationship with God and with others. Peace with ourselves is contingent on and a byproduct of being at peace with God and with others. These relationships make up so much more of our lives that even if we felt some kind of peace inside, we would not, ex or some kind of peace inside, if these relationships themselves remained broken, we would not experience the shalom, the wholeness, the true peace we are meant to live in through Jesus. And so now in light of this reality, how are we to pursue and experience peace with others and ourselves by pursuing and experiencing Jesus and in so doing, cultivating a relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's actually really, really simple, but it's very difficult, as we all, I'm sure, know. But Jesus, leading, uh, sorry, on the evening leading up to his death, spoke to his disciples about what was to come, and John records these uh, very powerful words in John chapters 14 to 16. And in this conversation, Jesus encouraged his followers then and now to follow him when he says in John 15 verses 4 and 5, remain in me as I also remain in you. Or how other translations put it, abide in me as I abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And ironically, he's telling his followers to remain in him in the same conversation he's telling them that he's leaving them. But he goes on again and encourages them by saying in chapter 16, verse 7, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And earlier on in chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, that the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. The peace Jesus leaves for us is the peace found in his presence, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are to follow the Prince of Peace in his ways, and it's the Holy Spirit who will help us do this. And so we need to create space. It, this takes a little bit of effort on our part. We need to create space in our day, every day, to ask the Holy Spirit, help me live like Jesus. Help me live in his peace and live out his peace with others. And then we need to listen. Because when we create space 
to read our Bibles or to pray, the more we're going to actually feel the Spirit nudging us to attend to areas of our lives where we're perhaps pursuing our own peace rather than others. Or when we're at work or church or life group, we're going to sense the Spirit prompting us to choose a different way when that person who just grates us the wrong way begins to talk. And we each have one of those people in our lives, and we are actually that person in someone's life. But the Spirit will invite us to act in a way that leads to peace. This is a life that is abiding with Jesus. And the more we do this, the Holy Spirit will begin growing the fruit Jesus was speaking of, some of which Paul mentions in Galatians 5, to 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if we notice, most, if not all, of these fruit are relational and are best expressed when interacting with others. And so the Spirit wants us to actually begin pursuing and doing the work that pursues this fruit with others. We don't just spend an hour in prayer asking for peace with others, and God just snaps his fingers and makes that happen, as great as that would be. Peace like all growth into Christ-likeness, requires effort on our part as we take our lead from the Holy Spirit. Peace with that coworker, with a family member, with that neighbor, whoever, requires us to take steps toward reconciliation. And in our doing, the Spirit does His work of cultivation, leading us to work side by side with God in loving relationship, reflecting His image out into the world and bringing His peace. All the while, we are becoming more like Jesus and experiencing more peace with ourselves as well. Because of what Jesus, our Prince of Peace, has done, we now have peace with God and can experience peace with others and ourselves. And the Advent season beckons us to pursue him and his way of life. And as we are led by and keep in step with the Holy Spirit, we will live from the peace we have with God and begin pursuing peace with others and experiencing peace with ourselves. And all this as we wait in hopeful expectation, as Pastor Jerry talked about last week, of Jesus' return, bringing his peace to complete fullness. So as I mentioned, we need to begin or make more uh, space in our days to ask the Holy Spirit to help us, to help us become more like Jesus, help us experience the peace God desires for us and for others. And so right now, uh, as we did last week, we're going to move into a time of prayer and response. And so if you have something that you just, you need prayer for, that's not really kind of on topic or whatever, which is totally fine. We have our crosses on, on either side. You can go in just a moment and pray with a team from our, from our prayer team. You can also write your requests on a sticky note, place them on the cross, and our, our prayer team commits every day of the week to pray and lift you up in prayer, these requests. If you're joining us online, you can put your requests in the chat, or you can text uh, Joanne, our care pastor, at 204-226-7254. However, let's also use this time to invite the Holy Spirit to draw us deeper into the peace Jesus brings. Maybe in this moment, you just need to preach the gospel to yourself and reflect on God's love and pursuit of you and praise him. 
Or maybe you need to invite the Spirit to search your heart and see where there is conflict with others or where you're placing the pursuit of your own peace above others. And then ask the Holy Spirit, help me be like Jesus. Help me pursue God's peace in this. And then listen and see where the Spirit leads you in that moment. So whatever you need to do right now, let's move into a time of prayer and respond to the Holy Spirit. You can stand with us as the worship team leads us.
Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for pursuing us, for making a way for peace to be restored through Jesus. Holy Spirit, lead us into the way of peace and empower us to take steps with ourselves and others that shape us more into the image of Jesus, our Prince of Peace, now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Soul Sanctuary, in ancient times, the one who offered a blessing raised their hands, and those wanting to receive the blessing did likewise. May we know the lengths the Father went to pursue us and bring us peace through Jesus. May we, by the power of the Spirit, pursue peace with others. And as we become more like Jesus, may we be led to peace with ourselves. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord, and we'll see you next week.